Lord, would you please train us so that whenever we see weakness, we would wait for you to display power. Would you please help us, Lord, that when we see our inadequacies, that, Lord, you would show your might and your worth in us and through us and around us. Lord, there is weakness here today. Weakness because of sickness. Weakness because of tiredness. Weakness because of a whole host of reasons. And yet, Father, you are a big, glorious God. And we would ask that you would do a mighty thing today as we open up your word, the communication that the Creator has given to us out of love because you are the one who redeems a people unto yourself. Help us, we pray, Father, to be transformed today, even in light of our weakness, that your strength might be shown. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our identity statement as a local church, we declare that when we gather, we gather for Jesus. That is, when we come together as a church family for worship, our highest aim is to please our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Now, we certainly want our worship gatherings to be edifying times that benefit everyone who comes. And we even want, to the best of our God-given ability, to do everything well, promoting the peace and the joy of God to everyone who participates with us. But our ultimate goal is to magnify the worth of the one who purchased us with his own blood at the cross and who sits over us as the head of this church. We want to please Jesus, so we gather for Jesus. Now, I don't want us to toot our own horn, but I think that our church identity statement falls right in line with the priorities that Paul lays out beginning in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 1 of this chapter, he starts with the words, first of all. You see that? My ESV translation begins with, with first of all. And it's here because this begins his practical apostolic instruction for young pastor Timothy. An instruction that is going to take up the rest of this letter. Now he has already charged him in chapter 1, if you remember, to be faithfully preaching to his congregation there in the city of Ephesus. And now Paul begins to provide direction for Timothy in how the local church including his local church at Ephesus, was to conduct itself with the aim of godliness in the house of God. And Paul begins these instructions by emphasizing something that is to be crucial in the life and the gatherings of every local church, and that is prayer. Paul's first purpose is that Timothy's church would pray together in God pleasing ways because godliness in the house of God includes prayer that pleases God. And there are two instructions from these verses about prayer in the local congregation which we are going to consider this morning. Instruction number one found in verses one and two of this small passage is this. The church 
should practice indiscriminate prayer for a peaceful purpose. First instruction is that the church should practice indiscriminate prayer for a peaceful purpose. Look at verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Local churches are to appeal to God in four interconnected ways. Paul urged Timothy to lead his church in offering to God, verse 1, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So he encourages four different types of prayer within the life of the local church. And to be fully candid with you, it is not all that easy to differentiate these four types, especially the first three. But I'm going to do my very best to take a crack at it this morning. The first one he mentions for us is supplications, which is likely the kind of prayer where an urgent request is made to God for the meeting of some specific need. Perhaps a person in the church is struggling with a serious sin and is about to make a very bad decision. The church will come and make a petition on behalf of that person to the Lord. Or perhaps an individual is about to walk away from the Lord Jesus due to persecution or to the pressures of this world. The church will then, again, step in and make supplication for that person. Supplication seeks to take specific, urgent items to the Lord for help. It's those big, momentary issues that arise where you have to go to the Lord and ask Him to intervene. The second type he mentions is the word prayer itself. A word which is the most common for prayer in all of the New Testament. This perhaps refers to the more general state of taking all matters to the Lord in an ongoing way. So rather than referring to an urgent, specific matter that must be told to the Lord immediately, this form of prayer has more to do with the general life of prayer that should mark God's people as they daily commune with him separately and together as a church family. These prayers then are more tightly connected to one's relationship with God with the expectation that he will answer those prayers in his time and in light of our relationship with him. The third type he mentions is the word intercessions. And this likely refers to prayers where Christians take it upon themselves to stand in the gap between another person and the Lord. Here the church prays on behalf of another person or perhaps on behalf of another group of people specifically, as if they were the intermediaries between individuals and God himself. Perhaps an example of this is when a church chooses to pray for a specific unreached people group in this world, that God might raise up missionaries and save those people with the gospel. It's to choose an individual or a group of individuals and decide we're going to be the ones who stand in the gap and pray regularly for that person or for those people. Well, the fourth and final type of prayer is thanksgivings, which, of course, is the expression of gratitude for God, for people in our lives, for his kindness to us each and every day in his grace, and for his wonderful answers to our prayers. 
So you take all these together, and we, the local church, are instructed to take our urgent requests, our ongoing petitions, our intercessory appeals, and our thankful utterances to the Lord. For this is an act, this is an act of godliness in the house of God. When God peop- God's people get serious about praying in a variety of ways together, this is an act of godliness in the house of God. And local churches, when they pray, are to pray indiscriminately, even for both good and bad leaders. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important to note that when Paul writes of prayer here, he is primarily referring to corporate prayer. That is, prayer that is offered when the local church is assembled together. Though his instructions throughout the rest of this letter will have individual ramifications for each of us, they primarily have to do with things connected to local church life or things which occur in the gathered life of the congregation. So primarily, the things we're going to see in this letter have to do with us when we gather together as a church family. Remember, that's the reason why Paul wrote this letter. In the next chapter, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he tells us the reason why he wrote it. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So these instructions that he's given to young Pastor Timothy and to his local church by extension are instructions on how to live out life in the local church. In our passage, we are told in verse 1 that such prayers are to be uttered for all people, it says. Note that expression, all people. The Greek word for people here is actually in the plural telling us that Paul does not mean that the local church is obligated to pray for every single person on the face of the earth, which would obviously be impossible, but rather that the church should pray for all people, meaning all kinds of people, or even better, all peoples, plural. It would not be possible for Timothy or the church in Ephesus, or our church for that matter, to pray for every single person in the world today. We simply do not know the names of most people on the earth, and we are not expected to pray for each and every person. However, the local church is to pray for all people indiscriminately and for all peoples on the earth who need to know Christ. Meaning, all types of people are to be prayed for. Jews and Gentiles and Romans and Ephesians and Chechens and Russians and Americans and janitors and lawyers and housewives and every other type of person that you can imagine, we should be praying indiscriminately for them all. All types of people, as we encounter them in the life of the church, as they're brought to us, are to receive the urgent requests the ongoing petitions, the intercessory appeals, and the thankful utterances of the local church when it gathers. It sounds like we have an awful lot of people to pray for. And one of the reasons that I'm confirmed in this understanding of the expression all people here in our passage, 
an expression that's actually going to be central to our understanding of verses 4 and 5, is that Paul ends this section of the letter in verse 7 by connecting it to his own ministry to all types of people. If you want to see what he means by a word, you need to read it in its context. And in verse 2, he's going to show one type of people that he refers to in verse 1, because in verse 2, he's going to talk about kings and those who are in high positions. That's one type of people that we should pray for. But then in verse 7, he declares that he was an appointed a, a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. The word Gentiles refers to the non-Jewish nations of the earth. Paul was ministering to all types of people among the nations, and the local church should include all types of prayer when it gathers for prayer. So Paul, he was ministering to a broad group of peoples, and we are to be praying for a broad group of peoples. And when the church gathers, and when it prays for all types, it must include prayers for both good and bad leaders. In verse 1, we are told that the church is to pray for all people. And then in verse 2, Paul narrows down the list. He specifies the list of who he's talking about to the government officials who have been placed by God over God's people. Now I say that they have been placed by God over his people because that is precisely what the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul wrote, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We are always a people who are under authority. We are under the local government authority, we are under state and national authority, and we have an obligation to submit to them within the confines of Scripture. And we do this because their authority is only given to them because it has been given to them by God. What they have, their authority, it exists because it has been instituted by God. Now, the Ephesian church, which Timothy pastored, they may have been, maybe even must have been, struggling much like the way we struggle to respect and pray for kings and high officials who are over us. Such leaders are sometimes good, but as we know, they're often not so good. In fact, sometimes these high officials are just plain bad. But the instruction here of God's apostle, indeed the instruction of God himself in his inspired word, is that local churches should pray for their leaders regardless of their quality. No doubt they should be prayed for with regard to many important things, that they will lead us with wisdom, that they will rule with integrity, that they will enact helpful policies that don't end up hurting us or others, that they will demonstrate God-honoring justice underneath their rule, and that they will display a kind of character which should be expected of those people who are in authority. But most importantly, as we're going to see in verse 4, they should be prayed for so that they might be saved by Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners. We pray for them not just to make our life more easy and better. We should pray for them so that they will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And here's why. 
when we pray for them unto that end, there's something that we're looking for as a result. The ultimate aim of such prayer is peaceful, holy living for God's people. We want them to be saved. We want them to be well, to rule well, because this leads to peaceful, holy living for God's people. That's what verse 2 says. He says that, there's the purpose clause, that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are to pray for the government leaders that God has placed over us so that we might enjoy wellness and rest as we live out our function as a local church. This word peace here, it carries the sense of wellness of life. And this word quiet, very similar to that word peace, carries the idea of tranquility and rest in one's mind and one's soul. These are very good things for Christians to pray for and even to attain. But when leaders don't lead well and there is turmoil in the land, it is far more difficult for God's people to enjoy peaceful living in their gatherings and no doubt in their missionary endeavors. In fact, bad governments can make it downright hard for local churches to perform their functions of worshiping God and obeying the Great Commission. No doubt the believers today in war-torn Burma and Ethiopia and Ukraine have experienced firsthand what a loss of such peace is like. And there are even several members in our congregation who fervently pray for their home countries which are riddled with political turmoil. And even here in America, over the last decade, things have not exactly been easy. So, we are to pray for our leaders because prayer is by far the most powerful thing that we can do to enact peace and tranquility in the land. And our ultimate aim in praying for our leaders, that we would have this peace, it's so that we would display our holiness before others. We want our leaders to be good. And we want our land to be at rest so that our godliness and our dignity would shine brightly. To be godly in this sense is to display an awesome respect for God in one's life. It's to live a life of God-fearing reverence before the Lord. To be dignified is to demonstrate that we are not ordinary people, but that we are the spirit-endowed, transformed people of God. We are a holy people, a set-apart people who are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and less and, like, less, and less like this world in which we live. Now, it is much harder to show this openly to broadcast it widely in places where religious freedom is not prized and where leaders rule as tyrants. So we pray as a church family for all types of people, especially our leaders, so that we can live in peace and rest and begin to show others our godliness and our holiness. So in light of this, let me offer three applications. First of all, our weekly gatherings should include intentional prayer for other people. As elders, we have sought to make that a point of emphasis that when we pray, 
we are praying for other people in our gatherings. For instance, we should pray for people who need to know Jesus as their Savior. A great example here are those people with whom we've already had gospel conversations. If you're somewhat new to Riverside, you should know that we don't emphasize numbers of people who make professions of faith in Jesus, but we do seek to emphasize our church body having gospel conversations where the good news of Jesus is shared with others. And we even have a part of our website that allows us to record those conversations to go and list, say, I had a conversation with so-and-so, here's what happened, pray for me in this way. And then it's sent out to our church, and the church is then tasked to pray for those people. Well, those are the kinds of things we should pray as we gather together as a church family. Praying for the gospel conversations that God brings into our lives that we would have boldness to share with those individuals. Also, we should pray for people who are hurting or who are in need. And I don't just mean for the sick or for the aged among us, but for those who are actually struggling in a myriad of ways, whether it be physical or financial or spiritual, whatever it might be, we want to be praying for people when we gather together, corporately as a church family, in our small groups. Whenever you get together with the local church, praying for people should be an important part of those gatherings. And certainly, when we gather, we are to pray for our national, our state, and our local leaders. I have this week tasked our small group leaders to guide our groups in prayer today when our groups meet for our elected officials by name. That we would pray by name for our president, our vice president, our senator, our congressman. We would pray for our local, uh, our state officials. We would pray for our local leaders as well by name, lifting them up. But I want to ask you today, because I know the climate that we are in right now, I want to ask you today to not pray for these folks in any way whatsoever that shows any disdain or disparagement of them, but instead to pray for them as souls who likely need to know Jesus and who certainly need his wisdom. Secondly, let me offer what I think is a wise strategy to let people know when we've prayed for them. Let me give an example of this. After the worship service, or after small group today, what would you think about texting or calling one of the people whom Tim prayed for before, or who you're going to pray for in small group today, texting or or telling that person, calling them or texting them, and letting them know that you and the group prayed for them, and that you value them, and that you honor them by lifting them before Jesus. That's the kind of information that builds people up and encourages them in Christ. It helps them to know that your prayer is not isolated, but in community you care about that individual. Also, what if, and I thought about this week, this is not something I do well, and something I want to do better at. What if we sent a message or even called our elected officials after we pray for them in a worship service and let them know that our church family is praying for them? Tim prayed for our mayor a little bit ago. I know our mayor a little bit, but boy, couldn't I know him better if I called him and told him that the people of Riverside just prayed for him today? Who knows how God might use that to build a relationship with that man. Third, and this is key, and this is so important in our day, 2023 United States of America. 
We cannot truly be prayerful towards all people if we mistreat those same people with our online or offline speech. You cannot righteously say that you care about people enough to pray for them if you abuse those same people with your online or offline speech. Just because it is on social media, it does not mean that gives you the license to go and rip people apart. You have an obligation as a Christian at times to point out contrast and to show areas where a person is wrong to be sure. But there is a way to do that. And it's all to be done within the confines of you caring about that person's eternity and caring that that person actually becomes a follower of Jesus Christ who leads people under them with wisdom. Name-calling and personal attacks and tone and verbiage that is more rude than helpful are unacceptable to God's people. If we are to be people who prayerfully take others to the Lord, we cannot disparage those people when we're online or when we talk about them with our friends. So that's our first instruction from Paul this morning. Instruction number two is found in verses 3 through 7, and it's this. The church should pray in this way because it's in line with God's saving desire. The church should pray in this way because it's in line with God's saving desire. Look with me at verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Such prayer pleases our God who desires all people to be saved. Now this is where a right understanding of that plural expression, all people, is so very important. Verse 4 is actually not saying that God desires every single person to be saved. Nor is verse 6 telling us that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for every individual person. Whether that is true or not from other places in Scripture, I do not think that that can be inferred from these verses. So whether or not God desires every single person on the earth to be saved, I do not think can be inferred from these verses here. Rather, if we're going to keep this in context to what Paul has already said, the expression, all people, is used here by Paul in the same way that he used it up in verse 1. To refer not to every single individual, but to all kinds of people. Jews, Gentiles, Ephesians, Americans, poor folks, government leaders, addicts, retirees, and so forth. Paul is telling us that God desires all types of people to be saved. Different nationalities, different language groups, different people groups, as well as people with different kinds of personalities and backgrounds and life employments. And Jesus Christ, the mediator, 
gave himself as a ransom for all types of people, saving a broad cross-section of human beings. God desires to save a myriad of peoples from this earth through his son, Jesus. So, I do not think that these verses undermine the doctrine of definite atonement, also known as particular redemption, which is the doctrine that declares that the ultimate benefits of Christ's atoning work are limited to his elect people and are not applied to every person in a full saving way. Rather, 1 Timothy 2 is telling us, I think, that God desires all people to be saved and that this desire by God should drive the prayer life of his church. In verse 3, Paul says that praying according to this truth is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Well, dear friends, pleasing God is the highest goal of both Christian living and congregational worship. And our prayers should be conducted in such a way that they will be pleasing to God and that he would call our prayers good. Our aim is to please him even in our prayer lives. That we not be the kind of people who pray only for a certain group or for a certain individual, but that we be the kind of people who are willing to pray broadly for whoever God might bring into our midst. God desires all types of people, verse 4 tells us, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. To come to the knowledge of the truth, it says. You see, when the human race fell in Adam, the first man, one of the effects was the loss of the knowledge of God with his truth. This is called by Bible theologians the noetic effect of the fall. N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic effect of the fall, whereby sinful human beings have lost their inward ability to know God and to agree with the truth of his word. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of men who because of their inward unrighteousness, they take God's truth and they suppress it. Their minds push God's truth away. The fallenness of Adam in them leads them to push God's truth away from their minds. They will not accept it. But God desires that all types of people would be restored from these effects of the fall and be saved unto the knowledge of truth. He desires that all forms of people would experience salvation, including a noetic salvation, whereby they are made able by God to know him and to agree with the truth of his word. This is why Paul says to Timothy in the next letter he writes to him, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, these words. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
Paul's prayer is that God would grant repentance to people so that they would come to the knowledge of his truth and escape the snares of the devil. My friends, that's what we're praying for. When we lift up our president or our senator or our mayor or any elected official, we're ultimately praying that God would grant them a repentance unto his truth. When you pray for your friend, your brother, your sister in Christ perhaps, you're praying that God will help them more clearly understand and apply his truth. This is why we pray. This is why Paul instructs local churches to take these things to the Lord. In verses 5 and 6, the importance of prayer for all people continues as we read that God's one mediator gave himself as a ransom for all people. A mediator is one who mediates between two parties to remove a conflict. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the mediator who stands between sinners and God in order to remove the conflict. My friends, understand that you and I as sinners, both by nature and by action, we are in conflict with God. We, in fact, are rebels against God. And God sees us as enemies, and we see God as someone we resist and do not want. We stiff-arm him. There is a conflict in the relation between God and the people he created. Well, Jesus is the mediator in the sense that he stands in between God the Father and his people, and he enables God the Father and his people to no longer be in conflict, but to come to peace. And he does this by way of a sacrifice. It tells us in the next verse that Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, or as we've seen, for all types of people. A ransom is a type of payment that is made for another individual's freedom. Jesus paid a ransom for his people's freedom with his own blood. The barrier between us and God was so stark, the only way it could be fixed was for death to happen, for God's judgment to come down upon us and for us to experience eternal separation, which is death away from God. But Jesus Christ stepped into the breach, and he took God's punishment upon himself. He shed his blood. He truly died so that the wrath that we deserved was instead placed upon him. And having the wrath removed through King Jesus, our sins are bought and paid for. They're gone, and we can now have fellowship with God. That's what Jesus accomplishes. As Matthew 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ served us by giving himself as a ransom payment, whereby we who are enemies with God can be forgiven and have fellowship with God. And he did this for all different kinds of people. When you look at verse 6, it is clear that it doesn't mean that Jesus has freed every individual of their sin debt before God. That would be what's called universalism, and it would go against the clear teachings of Scripture. 
sinner who has not repented and believed in Jesus is still in their sins. The ransom payment has not been awarded to them. Rather, as I've explained, this means that Jesus has paid, has paid the payment, the ransom payment, for every type of person to be saved. He has made the payment for every type of person to be saved. And you might be here today thinking, well, I'm sure he paid for that guy. I'm sure he paid for that gal. They look like they've got a lot more together than I do. Friend, understand, he paid for people like you. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what your background might be, Jesus Christ shed his blood as a ransom payment for sinners like you. There's no type of people that Jesus hasn't paid for. Jesus is paying for all types of people. And the way to enjoy this is to see your sin for what it is before God, that you have made a rebel of yourself before God in your sin, that you've rejected him, and that you are deserving of his wrath, but then to embrace Jesus in faith alone. That Jesus Christ accomplished what you couldn't do, and he paid your sin debt by dying at the cross and rising again triumphantly three days later. If you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, my friends, your sins have been paid for through the ransom payment of King Jesus, and your conflict with God is gone, and your fellowship with God is restored. All kinds of people can embrace Jesus because Jesus made himself the ransom payment for all. Now, God's saving message was taken by Paul to all kinds of people. I think what Paul means in verse 6 by the testimony given at the proper time is that now is the time for apostles like Paul and pastors like Timothy and Christians throughout the Roman world in that day to declare that Jesus was the ransom payment for sinners. Indeed, now is the time for our church to declare to the needy people around us that Jesus is the ransom payment for sinners. And according to verse 7, that was the very task that Paul was given. To preach and to represent and to teach about Jesus to the Gentiles or to the nations. Because as he went to the nations and told them of Christ, many different types of people believed and embraced the truth of God. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the nations, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Maybe your background is from Cuba, or Colombia, or Peru, or Iowa, whatever your background is, Paul wanted to go to the nations that they might know the unsearchable riches of Christ. And my friends, even today, the gospel is being sent to those nations and others that people might know the unsearchable riches of Christ. So let me conclude this by saying that the salvation of people is just simply of greater importance 
than our political and cultural security. As much as we desire and value peace and stability, that we might live godly and dignified lives in every way, our first aim has to be for people to be saved. Regardless of who the President of the United States is, regardless of who the Speaker of the House is, regardless of who my Senator is, regardless of who my City Council member is, my first aim is to see that individual know Jesus Christ. They may be bad, they may be good, my first aim and your first aim is that they would come to know Jesus Christ. And when they receive the gift of salvation, think of the wonderful blessings that that means for God's people when the wisdom of Jesus Christ is what guides the man or the woman who is over us. Because the salvation of people is so important to God, we must commit ourselves to evangelistic prayer. Let's pray for people and let's pray for peoples by name. Let's not keep it general. Let's pray specifically for individuals by name, that they would know Christ and the unsearchable riches of his gospel, that they would walk in his wisdom, and that they would live out lives that honor him. Let's pray for people by name, and let's intercede for people groups. Let's intercede for people groups who either don't know Jesus at all or who greatly need the church to start standing up strong in their place. Let us pray for people specifically as a church family. And let us pray for people and for peoples in community. As we just talked about this morning in our foundation, church life is meant to be that. Church life. Most all of the things that we have begun to think are singular items, individualistic items, are actually, if you look carefully in the scriptures, are meant to be community items. Though we're certainly to pray on our own, we're certainly to evangelize people wherever we go, we're to do these things ultimately within the confines of the local church. But we are to do these things in community with God's people. Paul is instructing Pastor Timothy so that Pastor Timothy would go and instruct and lead his church wisely to be praying for wise things. So let us be the kind of congregation who prays for people and who prays for peoples in community together. So godliness in the house of God includes praying in God-pleasing ways. Let's pray and then we'll go to the table and we'll rejoice in the God and Savior who made it all possible for us to have this community together. Oh, Lord God, I thank you that you have given us the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who made himself a ransom for all. We thank you, Father, that you're the kind of God who desires to see the peoples of this world embrace you. Lord, we don't declare to have it all figured out of what you're doing in this world but we do know that you want us to pray for people. So Lord, help us in that endeavor to be very wise in making this type of prayer central to our congregational life. And Lord, we are very aware of the fact that this has all come about because the blood of your son Jesus Christ was shed. We are very aware, Father, that we would have no standing before you. We would not be reconciled to you. We would not be able to even pray to you as our Father 
if it had not been for your son Jesus who shed his blood, having his body broken for us. We go to the table, Father, as needy people who recognize that it is through your grace alone, shown through your son alone, in his gospel alone, that we have standing before you. And we say this all in Jesus' name.